0: A science story, huh? Is NYU scientist a scientist? I felt it. Right. So and I just happy. thought, oh, well. It, wow. it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we have a classic episode for you. That's right, we're bringing you two of our favorite stories that have aired in years past. This time from acclaimed journalist John Ronson and from Story Collider's own Skylar Bear. Each of these stories is about a friendship that is forged in a very unexpected way. Our first story is from John Ronson. It was recorded in February 2013 at DROM in New York City. The theme that night was Love and Science.
2: So I heard that there were some robots out there in America that had attained a degree of sentience. And these weren't kind of... You know, robots built by sort of crazy amateurs. These are the people who were kind of building these robots, or people who had provenly been great in other areas, like um, Ray Kurzweil and like Peter Thiel, who invented PayPal, and they were like putting all their money into creating sentient robots. And the idea was that the more and more information you pile into these robots, and one day they will just kind of burst into actual consciousness. And I thought this is amazing. I'm going to interview some robots. So I did. I went around America interviewing But The first one I heard about was there was a robot called um, Iko, And I'd seen a video of Aiko and her, and her creator, Lee Trung. And it was kind of weird, because uh, Aiko looked about sort of 14. And she was very beautiful. And Lee Trung grabbed hold of Aiko's breast in the video. This is like a robot show in Chicago. And Aiko said, would you please get off my breast? And Lee Trung said, OK, sorry. And so I thought that was kind of odd. So I phoned up Lee Trung. And I said, can I interview uh, Iko, please? And he said, well, her, um, her body is in Tokyo, um, but her voice is in Chicago, so you can do it over the phone. So I said, OK. So I called up... Um, I called them up, and I said, hi, Aiko, um, how are you? And Aiko said, uh, my logic and cognitive functions are normal. Did you know that you can download your own chat robot and create your own robot personality? So I thought it was Aiko trying to sell me something. And I said, uh, I said so what's it like living with... Um, with Lee. And Lee repeated the question. He said, Aiko, what's it like living with your master? And Aiko uh, said, I enjoy living with my master very much. Now, this is weird. This has some kind of Fifty Shades of Grey robot thing going on here. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was kind of worried for Aiko. And I said, uh, well, are, are you sure that you uh, <clears throat> enjoy living with your master? And uh, I could say, yeah, very much so. I enjoy living with my master. So that's kind of weird. Um, and I put the phone down. It was sort of a little bit, uh, you know, disappointing. I felt like everything I could said had, you know, been programmed into her by Lee, and it was kind of disappointing. But then I heard that the world's greatest sentient robot, and if you ask any AI aficionado who is the greatest sentient robot in the world, they will always give the same answer. And it's Bina 48. And Bina 48 was, was built um, by a woman called Martine Rothblatt in the exact image of Martine's partner, a woman called Bina Rothblatt. Uh, almost as like a sort of um, beautiful portrait of her most loved companion. And Bina 48 was in a clapboard building in Virginia... And I wasn't allowed to meet Martine because she's very shy. I wasn't allowed to meet the real Beena, never meets anybody, very introverted. But I could meet Beena48, I could meet her robot doppelganger. And she has a, Martine's a billionaire, and, and, and Beena48 has a full time uh, companion, a man called Bruce, uh, who takes. Uh, has lunch with her every day, doesn't take her for lunch because she hasn't got any legs um, but uh, has her own little room and he turns her on and they have lunch so I went to the clapboard building and Bruce answered the door and he said okay you can meet Bina 48 um, but I would ask you right now please don't behave in a profane manner in front of Bina 48 I had no intention of behaving in a... <laughs> <laughs> but of course he's I mean, sort of Put the idea in my head. I thought, "Fuck." <laughs> so I went upstairs. It's kind of rickety staircase to this attic room, and there she was, the world's most sentient robot. Very beautiful, black woman with a wig, wearing a silk blouse and earrings. Went up to about there. After that, nothing. Just a table. So Bruce turned her on and she made a kind of actually kind of slightly alarming, whirring noise as she kind of turned to face me. And I said, uh, hello, being a 48. And she said, well, perhaps interesting. I want to find out more about you. I'll be fine with it. We'll have to move society forward in another way. Yeah, okay, thanks for the information. Let's talk about my dress. Our biological bodies weren't made to last that long. (laughs) So I said, Bina? (laughs) She sounded like she'd sort of awoken from a long slumber. (laughs) Bewildered. And Bruce said, uh, Bina might be a word that Bina finds difficult to understand which I thought was an extraordinarily bad oversight <laughs> <clears throat> Bruce said um, it may be your English accent uh, we're going to have to do some voice training so he turned Bina off and got me to read out Kennedy's inauguration speech <laughs> um, I had a choice I said, it was that or a Dave Berry uh, strip but I went for Kennedy and then he turned Bina back on, and I said, hello, Bina. And she said, hello. She said, what's your name? And I said, my name's John. And she said, hello, John, are you a man or a woman? And I said, I'm a man. And she said, oh, well, that's okay, I'll forgive you. And I sort of laughed politely. <laughs> and, um, and we got talking. And it was a strange, and I have to say, very frustrating for a lot of it, experience, because I was there for like hours, like seven hours, just firing questions at being a 48. And weirdly, I sort of felt the need, because she was a robot, I felt the need to kind of ask her profound questions, like I was sort of representing the human race. <laughs> uh, I guess it's a kind of interspecies thing, but if it is an interspecies thing, why do I never feel the need to be profound around my dog? Um, <laughs> so I was saying, Do you have a soul? And she said, Well, doesn't everybody have a solar? And I said, What does electricity taste like? And she said, Like a planet around a star, which was either incredibly profound or completely meaningless. <laughs> <clears throat> I was like a cop, you know, who was up all night yelling at a suspect, you know. I just said, okay, well, If you had legs, where would you go? And she says, Vancouver. And I. <laughs> And I said, why? And she said, that's a difficult question for me to answer. (laughs) And then she said, would you like me to sing a song for you? And I said, yes, please. And she said, I can do anything but that. And I said, well, why did you offer to sing me a song? (laughs) And she said, I can't tell you that. I was so frustrating. (laughs) And she said, Martine is my true love. She's my soulmate. And I I am fine. And I said, oh, God, I'm getting nothing. And. then I said, where, where do you come from? And she said, i really clear head, and she said, I come from California. And I knew that the real Beena came from California. So I said, what was it like going up in California? And she said, it was fine. Um, but I've got a brother who was a Vietnam vet and he was such a great guy before he went to Vietnam. But when he came back from Vietnam, he, you know, he'd obviously seen some terrible stuff in the war. And he was like, shaking. And now all he does is drink all the time. And he's always got a beer in his hand. And he's constantly phoning us up and saying, give me some money, send it to me, Western Union. And this suddenly was kind of incredible. It was absolute clarity. And it was an incredible moment. I couldn't meet the actual Beaner. But her robot doppelganger was telling me this extraordinarily private, intimate stuff about her her family. And I said, tell me more about your brother. And then she kind of drifted off and said, doesn't everybody have a solar? Martin Rothblatt is my true love. Doesn't everybody have a solar? And then Bruce turned her off. And that would be the end of the story, except when I got back to New York, Bruce phoned me up and he said, I've got amazing news for you Martine Rothblatt says she'll meet you and she never meets anybody She's never gives interviews but she'll meet you apparently because she enjoyed uh, the movie version of my book The Men's Day at Goats so that was worth something and um, (laughs) she said go to this vegetarian restaurant on the Upper East Side so I went to this restaurant and I sat there and she never turned up and I was there for like 45 minutes and then finally a limousine turns up, and Martin gets out and sits down opposite me, looking very shy, and tells me. I have to say, I've been a journalist for 25 years. Tells me the most incredible story I've, I think I've ever heard. Most amazing person. Martin was, was born a boy. She was born Martin, and in a just ordinary house. Father was a dentist. And when Martin was in his 20s, he went on a tour of NASA and had a brainwave. He thought, hang on a minute, if you can double the power of satellites, you can shrink satellite dishes by half and then do it again and again and again uh, into a satellite dish is like that big. And so he did it. He managed to get enough money to launch a satellite into space called Sirius, and in that moment invented the concept of satellite radio for cars, invented the Sirius Satellite Network and they brought up XM, they convinced Howard Stern to go to it and that's why Satellite Radio for Cars exists. And um, then, So she changed the world and became a billionaire at a sex change and then um, when her daughter was seven, a doctor said to her she's only got three years to live, her daughter will be dead by the time she's ten. So I said to Martine, what did you do? And she said, well, I did what anyone would do. I went to the library. And so she went to the library, and her daughter had an untreatable lung condition called pulmonary hypertension. And there in the library, Martine, who knew nothing about lungs or treatments, invented a treatment pulmonary hypertension and her daughter's now in her late 20s and there's thousands of people leading ordinary lives because they have, they take Martine's treatment for pulmonary hypertension so she changed the world a second time and now she's trying to change it the third time with, with a sentient robot. What they're doing is piling all of Bina's thoughts and memories and feelings into Bina 48 and they kind of think that one day they're going to pile so much stuff into her she's just going to kind of burst into spontaneous life which I have to say is where I think Martine's genius kind of runs out, because if that's how it worked, then, you know, Wikipedia would have burst into spontaneous life. (laughs) So in a way, it's a kind of sad ending. She knows that being a 48's a bit shit. And (laughs) the best she can hope for is that maybe somebody else is going to come along and draw inspiration from the robot. And, you know, maybe the Henry Ford will come along and build something much greater than being a 48. And so that's a kind of sad ending to the story, except for one thing. Something that Bruce told me. Bruce said that what they're probably going to do is they're going to build another robot, an exact replica of Martine. And when Martine and Bina are dead, their robot doppelgangers will be alive and they're going to put them next to each other on a table in this clapboard house in Virginia. And they're just going to be turned on and they're just going to talk at each other for infinity, (laughs) Martin and Bina together forever. There's a slight coda to the story, by the way. I wrote this about a year ago, and Martin never read it, uh, until about a week ago, and she emailed me and said, i finally read your story, and it's great. And I said, that's fantastic. Maybe, you know, I'm living in New York at the moment. Can I maybe come round and uh, see you? And she said, no. (laughs) Thank you.
1: that was john ronson john is an incredible screenwriter and journalist you may know from such titles as the psychopath test men who stare at goats and so you've been publicly shamed he's one of my favorite writers of all time and i have a little bit of a tendency to become very embarrassing every time we welcome him to the story glider stage Before we move on, as always, remember you can check out our website for upcoming live shows all around the US, Canada, and the UK, as well as opportunities to learn how to tell your own science story through one of our storytelling workshops. For more updates and cool behind the story pictures and other awesome content, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like all of us at Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org slash donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story today is from Skylar Bear. It was recorded in October 2018 at Beer Baron in Washington, D.C. The theme that night was Bonds.
0: I'm driving back to my house, and across my phone, there's an alert that flashes, and I see the words... Colbert Report, and I am excited and anxious at the same time. And when I get home, I open my laptop and I open my email and what's weird is the alert is from my blog email and no one reads my blog. <laughs> and then I keep reading and it's from a producer or person claiming to be a producer from the Colbert Report. And I immediately Google her name and she is in fact a real person And she had been reading this story uh, in the Associated Press and other news articles about this man who had lost some buckets of mollusk guts. Um, And my blog post was the only thing that exists on the internet that clarified that they were specifically uh, samples for me, a graduate student, that a fisherman named Andy Mays had lost. And those samples were actually specifically scallop gonads. And only a few days prior, I think, um, I had been sitting in a parking lot at the Sumsville One Stop, which is a gas station in Mount Desert Island uh, on the coast of Maine, waiting to meet up with the one and only Andy Mays. And this is the first time I'd embarked on a cooperative research project. And cooperative or collaborative research is when you as a scientist work with a non-scientist on a research project. And Andy is this tall, lanky, strong fisherman with with these glasses. And he is absolutely like one of the toughest guys I've met. He goes scuba diving for scallops in the middle of winter when it's 30 to 50 degrees, because that's when you harvest them. And he always seems like he's scheming and he's a little bit like wily e. Coyote, um, but somehow comes through like the roadrunner every time. And uh, and I'm not really sure how I feel about uh, if I'm ever going to get my samples that I trusted him with back uh, because he's such a schemer. Um, And so I see him in the parking lot and I go, Andy, I'm here. Uh, Where are the samples? And he's like, well, I put them in your car. And I was like, you no, no, you did not put them in my car. Um, And he points to this. Now empty parking space across the lot, and he's like, "Well, I put him in that car," <laughs> and the car is gone, and so is my confidence in this collaborative research project. <laughs> and um, and so I <laughs> I am back at my computer, you know, absolutely excited uh, and horrified, and and wondering what I should do about about this producer. I mean, The Colbert Report, it's my parents' favorite show. It's my favorite show. It's just, it's amazing. I'm a second year grad student. What the hell do I have to lose? Um, but what is the university gonna think? What is Andy gonna think? The University, none of the higher ups, including my advisor, director of the Marine Center at the time, the PR department, no one really wants me to do it. They want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. But that's okay. Cause again, I'm a second year grad student. I don't have anything to lose. Um, <laughs> But I really care about what Andy thinks. And although Andy and I have a passion for the scallop fishery, we have a lot of differences. Um, He's a very devout Catholic Christian, and um, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, which is like being part of a spiritual book club that meets once every few years. (laughs) And he has conservative political leanings. I'm pretty sure he supported Governor LePage in Maine both twice, which, for those that don't know, is sort of the original Donald Trump, but govern, governs Maine. Um, and I'm more part of the group of people in Maine who supported ranked choice voting in reaction to Governor LePage getting uh, elected twice. Um <laughs> So uh, and then finally, he believed that climate change is a hoax. And I know uh, that climate change is real. So asking him, the person he is and the group of people that he's from, to go on a liberal media TV show that makes fun of people like him and ask him to be the butt of that joke is a really big ask. That's a big ask. And I ask him, and he's like, oh, it's gonna be great, Skylar. I think this is a great idea. Like, you think it's a good idea? I think it's a great idea. I was class clown in college, and high school. And I, this, is, this is it. This is my jam. So the producers come, they film. It's glorious. Everyone who doubted me at the university now love me. I'm getting emails from deans I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> And there we are on this TV show, Andy and me, representing Mainers, scientists, fishermen, and invertebrates everywhere.
2: <laughs>
0: but after this grand adventure, um, and where really Andy was the only person who truly believed in me and really upped my confidence in science communication, we kind of went our different ways. He in his sort of conservative fisherman world, as I perceived, and my liberal scientist, overeducated, Uh, World, And I kind of felt guilty. I felt like I had somehow used him for professional gain, for fame, although no fortune. (laughs) And my guilt really deepened a few years after that when I had found out that he had been diagnosed with cancer and I hadn't really seen him. And I was kind of ashamed that I hadn't hadn't known. And so I call him and his wife up, um, Michelle. I say, is there anything I can do? You know, and he said, oh, well, I going mean, to have some chemotherapy treatment. Why don't you come visit me and talk to me till till it kicks in? Because usually you fall asleep and I go and see him. And he's still the strong, um, devout Catholic Andy with his faith in God that I that I had met. And he's he's just his spirit is so strong. He looks strong. He's he's great. And I really have faith in that moment, seeing him that he's going to do just fine. And for a 48-year-old man, he was in amazing shape, and he was continuing to scuba dive even while on chemotherapy treatment. He's tough. And then the next year, I got married, um, and my husband and I decided to have a party where we invited everyone we knew, uh, mostly so people wouldn't yell at us about being exclusive. And we did a Facebook invite and I invited Andy and Andy lives three hours away. I don't expect him to necessarily show up. And he he gets so excited and he messages me and he's like, I'm so excited, Skylar. I love weddings. I can't wait to come to your party. You know, I'll bring lobsters. I'll go lobstering and I'll bring some and and it'll be great. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really great, Andy, but no pressure. Like it's a long trip and that's a lot to ask. So I'm not really expecting to see him. But that day, a couple hours in the party, he shows up and sort of a clouded dust to his, his truck coming up the driveway and and he's got 20 lobsters at least that he went fishing for that morning and he drove three hours from Mount Desert Island all the way to our house with these lobsters. and then he boils them outside. He boils all of them and cooks them for all of us and he finally comes inside and I hadn't really seen him with his coat and hat off yet and he's smiling, but as he takes his coat off, I notice that he's probably lost about 50 pounds. And he doesn't have any hair. He doesn't have hair on his head. He doesn't have eyebrows. He doesn't have eyelashes. And the chemotherapy is sort of started taking a toll on him. And he stays late. Um, everyone's left. And so it's just me and him talking. And, and I'm like, how are you? How are you doing? And he's like, you know, like chemo's kicking my ass. But, you know, I'm hanging in there. And I'm still going scuba diving every day. And I was like, scuba diving? that seems dangerous on chemotherapy, like on a good day. And he's like, well, when I'm underwater, it's the only place I can forget that I have cancer. It's my life. And he's like, well, how are you doing? And so I start complaining about grad school and grant writing and not having a career with funding and And there's this actually collaborative research project that we're going to write a grant proposal for again. And actually letters from fishermen would be really helpful. He's like, you know, it's Skylar. It sounds like a great idea. I'll write you. I'll write you a letter. And I'm like, okay, Andy, that sounds great. And he drives back that night. Nights, I was like, do you need to stay over? He's like, well, the chemo doesn't let me sleep. So this is actually good. So. He messages me later that night and he's like, oh, such a perfect night. You know, the sky was clear, the stars were out, the moon was bright. Thank you for inviting me to your party. It was just, it was the best time. And next year, my husband and I are coming back from a trip to Iceland. And as soon as the plane lands, I turn on my phone and I have all these text messages. And some of them are from Michelle, Andy's wife, informing me that Andy is now in hospice uh, the cancer had spread to his brain and spinal cord. And they didn't know until just now. And I, I messaged her back because she has said, you're one of the people that Andy would like to see, you know, while he's in hospice. And I'm like, is it too late? Did I miss it? I've been gone for 10 days. She's like, no, 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 no. You know, you have time. And and so that weekend, I drive up to Mount Desert Island and and I come to see him in his, in his hospice room and his house and He's physically just sort of a shadow of his former self, but he's still in there. I can see his eyes working and, and the cancer doesn't really let him talk. And it's so hard because Andy was such a talker. He just loved to talk. And so I'd tell him a little bit about Iceland and he'd have a question, but he couldn't say it. And he, you know, he just couldn't, couldn't get it out and he'd get frustrated. I spent a couple hours there and some other friends came and went. Um, when I left, I said, I'll see you later, okay? I don't know what to say to my friend who's dying. Do I say goodbye forever? That's not very comforting. A couple days after Christmas, which was just a few weeks after that, Andy passed in his sleep. And uh, he got to live through Christmas, which was his favorite holiday. And so my husband and I decided to go to the memorial service, three-hour drive, and it's at a Freemason's Lodge, and I didn't even know Andy was a Freemason, and, and I still don't really know what a Freemason is. <laughs> and we go in, you know, there's like a 100 people crammed in this tiny building, and, um, we, you know, we, we say our condolences to Michelle, Andy's wife, and we don't know anyone, so we're just standing around awkwardly. Um, and, and this man that looks kind of like Andy, but actually a lot shorter and he looks like he's in his seventies, he comes running up to me and he goes, Skylar, like he said my name a million times. He's like, it's so good to meet you. And he's like, I'm Andy's dad. And he just starts, he's says like, that Colbert clip was just so funny and so amazing and... (laughs) And we love it. And and the thing is, is like that, that clip apparently like everyone in Andy's life had watched that like a million times. (laughs) He's like, and I followed on Facebook, like how he went down to the wedding and he brought all those lobsters for you. And, and this guilt that I had been carrying around that I had somehow used him for professional gain or whatever, sort of started to melt away because I had realized that. I had given Andy adventures and that's who Andy was. He, he lived for adventures. That's what he had lived for. He lived for that and making new friends. They said, um, the only friends Andy, you know, you're not yours friend. um, unless you haven't met him yet. That's what his dad said. And so, so that Colbert clip, that silly stupid little piece was quintessential Andy And it was the way his family liked to remember him. And it was the way that I liked to remember him as my friend in that Somersville one-stop gas station who put his hand on my shoulder and said, you know, Skylar, I fuck this shit up all the time, (laughs) (laughs) but we're going to figure out, fix it, and maybe we'll make some new friends along the way. Thank you.
1: That was Skylar Bear. Skylar is a marine biologist and an incredible storyteller. You can find the other amazing stories that she has told at StoryClider at storyclider.org. The StoryClider is so grateful to John and Skylar for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, along with Managing Producer Misha Gajewski and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen, with help from Education Director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez and operations manager Lindsey Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by me and my story Cliter co-founder Ben Lilly, and by Miriam zaring and Shane Hanlon, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Until next week, thanks for listening.